stand together tonight as we reverence reading God's Word. We're going to be looking at a message I call Coming to the Cornerstone in 1 Peter chapter 2. Coming to Him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. It's my prayer. You have your seated. Coming to the cornerstone. This passage presents the truth of Christ as the cornerstone. As we read on in the passage, we find ourselves reaching an alternative very quickly. Therefore, to you who believe... He, that's the cornerstone, is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. The stone which the builders rejected. Now, this would speak specifically of the Jewish people. Remember that John introduced his gospel by telling us that he, that is Jesus, came into his own, and his own received him not. His own there, referring to the Jewish people over and over again, referred to in Scripture as God's own chosen people or his own special people. And yet, though they were God's own chosen people, Jesus came to them, and of all people, they rejected him. They were the builders, especially the Jewish leaders, the experts. If anyone should have understood who Jesus was, it should have been them. If anyone would have recognized Jesus, it would have been them. And yet, Simon Peter says, The stone which the builders rejected. He presents, interestingly, a progression where people are first disobedient to the word and then offended by the word. It is a stone of stumbling. They stumble over it because they're disobedient. And it then turns into a rock of offense. So they were offended by him. They stumbled. We saw this play out perhaps most notably in Jesus' visit to his hometown. Early on in his ministry, he would go to Nazareth, to a little place, a little village where he had grown up, and thus the title, the Nazarene. And while he was there, he would speak in their synagogue, and he would call, read from there a passage of scripture and sit down to teach upon it. And they were astonished. But then they were offended. Isn't this the carpenter's son? I've known this boy his whole life. We've watched him grow up. 
This is Jesus. We know Jesus. How could he claim to be the one that the Spirit of the Lord was upon? How could he claim to be the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah? They would take up stones to stone him. We saw that same reaction play out over and over again in Jesus' life. The Jews, indeed, they stumbled over him. But then they were offended by him. And it came because of their disobedience. And that offense then was something to which they also were appointed. We need to make careful uh, interpretation or application of this passage because Simon Peter did not say that they were appointed to be disobedient, but they were appointed to be offended. Uh, They were appointed. Once they were disobedient to the word, then it is a natural and ongoing progression that those disobedient to Christ will then progress to be offended by him. Remember Paul talked about the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross has not ceased. It's still here. It still plays out in communities all across this land, including our own here in Cabot. As people reject Jesus, and then they find him particularly offensive. It's interesting that uh, that offense doesn't play out for anything else. Uh, I've never heard anybody in all of my life uh, curse Muhammad or curse Buddha. But hardly a day goes by that you don't, and even sometimes I don't hear somebody curse God. Why is that? Well, it's playing out in our text. They're first disobedient to the word. And then they are offended by it. Those two goes together, go together. Christ is first rejected. Then he becomes repulsive. That side of the cornerstone then you see very easily could very well be the subject of an entire message. But I'm not going to preach that tonight. Because tonight we're going to focus in our attention On the other side of it, to you who believe, to you who believe, he is precious. In this text then that speaks of those of us who come to him, who come to the cornerstone. And first we'll consider this tonight by emphasizing what exactly we are coming to. Coming to him, verse 4, as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious and precious, coming to him. Yet even though we are coming to Jesus, he is presented in this passage not as a who, but as a what, as unto a living stone, as if we were coming to a living stone. In itself, this is contradictory because no stone is alive. Some stones used to be alive. I've got a chunk of petrified wood in my office. It's now a rock. But it once was a living piece of wood. But now it's a rock. Some rocks used to be alive. But no rock 
that we're familiar with is alive. But this one is. This speaks of a character of Jesus Christ that is like a stone, but he is a living stone. Uh, Simon Peter knew that very well. Uh, After all, he was uh, an eyewitness to that empty tomb so long ago. He, He knew that his Savior was alive. He had seen him again and again and again. It changed his life, and it changed the lives of all of the others We approach then Jesus not as just a stone, but as a living stone, and not just as a living stone, as the living stone, but the cornerstone. This is a truth that is often presented in the New Testament about Jesus Christ. Simon Peter was far from alone in using this imagery. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 12 and verse 10, Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Matthew and Luke also recorded with a time when Jesus made that statement. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Acts chapter 4 and verse 10. (laughs) Simon Peter could almost be quoting from his own sermons. Because Simon Peter in Acts chapter 4 and verse 10 was preaching and he said, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even to him does this man, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set of naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Paul, the apostle, would use that same imagery. Ephesians 2 and 20. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, all of these quotations were either from Psalm 118.22, if you want to go check it out, or Isaiah 28.16, if you've got a reference Bible, you'll probably see them referenced, one or the other, sometimes both. Psalm 118.22, Isaiah 28 and 16. These were prophecies then in the Old Testament, prophecies in the Psalm, prophecies from the Hebrew hymn book, prophecies from Isaiah 28. That said that Jesus Christ would be the chief cornerstone. But that he would be rejected by the builders. Now the cornerstone was laid in such a way. That all the other angles and all the other stones that would be laid. Would be set by the cornerstone. It had to be perfectly cut. As the builders like to say. It had to be square, and it had to be plumb. I've always liked to say plumb, by the way. Square and plumb. If it wasn't perfectly square and perfectly plumb, then everything else in the building would be out of place. You did not build your building and then set the cornerstone To fit your building. No. You set the cornerstone. And then you build the building. 
by that cornerstone. Simon Peter tells us that God is building a spiritual house. And this spiritual house speaks of the New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We aren't joining, you see, a religion. We are joining Jesus Christ, who Simon tells us is the very cornerstone of our lives and of our worship and service. So that the church is built on Jesus as the cornerstone. The cornerstone does not move to us. It does not adjust to us. It does not accommodate us. We come to him. Isn't that very powerful imagery? We come to him. And then Peter tells us in that stark contrast that this cornerstone, this living stone, is rejected by men but chosen by God. We figure out pretty quickly then that God doesn't rule by majority vote. (laughs) Uh, Men can reject him. Even the majority of men can reject him and have. But God has chosen him. And that is critical to our thinking as believers. In the architecture you see of the day, that cornerstone would provide the alignment both horizontally and vertically. The other stones that were set horizontally, those would be set by that stone. And the stones that were set vertically would be set by that stone. Jesus Christ then, as the cornerstone, becomes the the means by which we can all be properly related to God. That's the vertical side of it. And properly related to each other. So that with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, as the cornerstone of the church, set in such a way so that everything then can be added to him, we create then this spiritual house that Simon Peter describes, a place where men and women, where people are properly related to God and properly related to each other. And all we have to do is be properly set to the cornerstone. On the one hand, we might think it impossible to reject the one chosen of God, but make no mistake about it. If Jesus Christ were to ride a donkey right down Bill Foster Memorial Highway today, the multitudes would reject him. They would reject him. But remember at Jesus' baptism what the Father said. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. (laughs) Well pleased. Precious, you see. This is my beloved Son. Precious to God. In whom I am well pleased. This would be repeated on the Mount of Transfiguration. Those references are Matthew 3. And Matthew 17, his baptism in Matthew 3, his transfiguration in Matthew 17. And with the addition, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased on the Mount of Transfiguration. Hear him. Hear him. You see, let the world say whatever it wants to say about Christ 
and about Christianity. Let the world see whatever it wants to see in Jesus Christ. But the truth does not change. Jesus is the living stone. He is chosen by God and he is precious to God. I'd understand how important this is and how vital this is in the biblical uh, revelation we need to remember that time when Jesus uh, took the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi a very Gentile area a place that literally contained a place I've told you this before there was a cave there Uh, the cave went down down deep and they couldn't measure it they considered that cave to be the entrance of the underworld the literal gates of Hades the gates of hell It was a place of horrible idolatry, as most idolatry was, but this one particularly so, because they worshipped the god Pan, and this was dedicated to him, and Pan was the one that had the torso of a man and the body of an animal, of a goat, and and he was worshipped then in scenes of most forbidding vulgarity. It was a terrible place, so terrible that the Jewish rabbis forbid uh, the Jewish people, Orthodox Jews, to even go there. Jesus went there. And it was there that he asked that disciples, who do men say that I am? And they had several opportunities, several things they could say. Well, some say you're this, some say that. But who do you say that I am? And by the way, it was Simon Peter. Yeah, this, this guy, Simon Peter. Who said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but the Father which is in heaven. You didn't figure this out on your own. God told you. I I love that. The Father has revealed this to you. And I say unto you, Jesus said, That thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That's Matthew 16 and 18. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Upon this rock I will build my church. What was the rock? (coughs) Well, that's still in dispute today. Many well-meaning Christian people down through the centuries have come to the conclusion that Jesus was saying that Simon Peter would be the rock upon which the church was built But apparently Jesus forgot or or neglected to get that point across to Simon Peter. Because you see, Simon Peter very clearly says in our text tonight that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Paul the apostle would say that the church would be built upon the foundation of the apostles, plural, and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. What was the rock? The rock was Simon Peter's confession, the truth that he had proclaimed. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That confession, that profession, the truth about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the rock, the stone that the builders rejected, the living stone, Jesus, would be the foundation of the church. Peter knew very clearly who the cornerstone was. 
And so by telling us then that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, he was telling us that Jesus, in, in that building of the spiritual house, Jesus would be the first stone set in place. He would be the stone by which every other stone would be determined so that it would be set in place horizontally. It would be set in place vertically. Everything, all the measurements of the entire structure then would be related to him because he is the very first stone put in place. But then he also tells us that he had become the head of the corner. And I don't know why I found that so confusing all those years because I kept wondering how could Jesus be both the cornerstone and the capstone. But if you stop and think about it, it makes perfect sense. He's the first stone put in the building and he is the last stone put on the building. And that makes sense because after all, Hebrews 12 and 2 says, he is the author and finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Not one time, not two times, not three times, but four times in the book of Revelation, Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last. Uh, yeah, you see, Jesus is both the first stone put in place that orients the entire building, and he is also the last stone, the finishing stone, capstone. Simon Peter knew who the cornerstone was. He knew who the head of the corner was. The stone that the builders rejected occupied both positions. So that's who we're coming to or what we're coming to. We're coming to the cornerstone, the one that we must be oriented to, that doesn't adjust to us, that's not subject to discussion, that's not subject to majority vote. Uh, he is chosen by God. He is precious to God. He is the living stone, the author and the finisher, the first and the last. That's who we're coming to. Then we also see in our text what happens when we come to him. What happens when we come to him? Verse 5, you also. And with those two words, Simon Peter reaches across all these many centuries to put, lay his hand on my shoulder and the shoulder of every person in this building tonight. You too. You also. You also. As living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. You also as living stones. You see, when we, we come to Jesus... And that's critical. Jesus made two very critical statements that involved those words. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he said, come unto me. Come unto me. Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a magnificent invitation that is. Come unto me, 
all. (laughs) Not some, not a few. Coming to me, all. All you that labor and are heavy laden. Why would he describe those that way? Because sin makes us work hard. And sin creates a heavy burden to bear. Come unto me, Jesus said, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give ye rest. Come unto me. Then Jesus would speak to another group of people on another occasion in John chapter 5 and verse 40 and said, and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. And every person in this building tonight and every person who might someday or, so, or even now be watching this message from wherever or whenever is on one side or the other of those two statements. Either you have come to Jesus Christ and you have indeed experienced the joy of having your sins forgiven and your burdens lifted so that you are now at peace with God. Your salvation is not a maybe so, hope so, think so, might be so. I'm going to wait till I die and figure it all out. No, your salvation is a no-so salvation because you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you now, being justified by faith, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't want you living in a constant and perpetual state of fear. Come unto me, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. Why? Because we rest in the completed sacrifice of Jesus Christ. How can we do that? Because Jesus Christ, your Savior and mine, hung on Golgotha's crest and said three incredible words. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. It is the height of ignorance at best. It is spiritual arrogance at worst. To actually believe that somehow it must be up to us to add something to what Jesus has declared to be finished. Imagine standing before, if you could do so, the the magnificent painting of Leonardo da Vinci, the Mona Lisa. Man, I need to fix that smile. I I believe he should have turned that just a little bit more. The very idea. Anything you see we would add to that would mar it. It's finished. You can't finish something that's already finished. And so we rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ because when he died on the cross, then the work of redemption was done. And it was available then to all who would come unto Jesus. Come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, I pray tonight that you have come to Jesus. Right up front then, we notice that when we come to Jesus, he turns us into living stones too. I I like the old King James translation of this. You, You also as lively stones, it says. What's it mean? It means living stones. But, but I really like that lively stones. Uh, you see, I, I, I like to go fishing every now and then. Y'all know about that. 
And one of the first things I learned, I don't, I'm not a minnow fisherman. I fish with jigs for the most part. And uh, yes, we are a little bit snobbish about such things. We are, us crappie fishermen, we are. I don't fish with minnows very much. But if I'm going to fish with minnows, I want some lively minnows. I don't want some minnows just kind of laying around about to die. No, I want them up and going and frisky. I know about having lively bait and how important that is. That's why I like the term, you also as lively songs. You're not just living, you're lively. (laughs) Sometimes you're very lively, I'll tell you. Oh, we become living stones. Now, how does Jesus do this? How does this living stone make us living stones? And this is laid out for us in Scripture around the use of the word partaker. There's several passages then that mention this great word partaker. And the first one is in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Oh, what a great passage that is. You see, Jesus became a man. Because then the children, the people that he wanted to save were flesh and blood people. He took on flesh and blood. Why? For the suffering of death. He took on a human body so that he could die. Oh, how the devil must have delighted in his death, thinking that he had won the victory. He had not. See, the devil don't know everything. The devil is not not omniscient. Had he known that this was going to be the ultimate victory, in fact, the Bible tells us they would have never killed the prince of life. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. So Jesus Christ... Became a partaker of flesh and blood so that he took on our form. As a result of that, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13, we see that he, we are partakers of his sufferings. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, we're told that we're partakers of his heavenly calling. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 4, we're told that we are partakers of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 10, we're told that we are partakers of his holiness. And in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, just a few passages later, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption That is a world through lust. Paul put it this way. That as many of us as are in Christ. Are a new creation. A new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold all things are become new. God makes us new in Jesus Christ. How does he do that? Well he makes us living stones. Jesus Christ is a living stone. He makes us living stones. We are then partakers of of Christ because Christ is in us and we are in Christ. And he then connects us to himself. And at the same time, he connects us to other living stones. You see, where once we were alienated, where once we were separated from God, 
We were without God. We were without a commonwealth. Aliens, he said, from the commonwealth of Israel. We were without hope and without God in the world. But now we're the people of God. God does not intend for us to be isolated. It's out alone in this world. No, he intends for us to be connected with other believers. And he does this because now we are the people of God. And through this marvelous uh, institution that Jesus Christ himself started, the New Testament church, he is able then to connect us to other believers so that we are builded together as a spiritual house. And therefore, again, I say, we can be rightly related to one another and rightly related to God as long as we stay rightly related to that cornerstone. Then he makes us into a holy priesthood. This is another great doctrinal truth that the New Testament presents to us, and that is the priesthood of the believer. So that we need no other intercessor to go to God for us because we can go to God ourselves, the holy priesthood. But as, as more, even more, the, the, the priest had a, a particular responsibility. And that is they represented men to God and they represented God to man. And so as a holy priesthood then we are sent out into the world, out into our workplace, out into our sphere of influence where God is able to work through you because you are a living stone, because you are a partaker of the divine nature, because Christ is in you and because you are in Christ then God is able to work with you and work through you reach others if we approach the Christian life and the whole subject of church within the framework of what it does for me or what I like or what I want we're missing this critical point God makes us a holy priesthood and as a holy priesthood then we can offer spiritual sacrifices Romans chapter 12 tells us what the first sacrifice is this is no big surprise to you ourselves we present our bodies unto him as a what? A living sacrifice. We're a living stone. You say, well, that's a contradiction. It's no more contradiction than a living sacrifice. We're a living sacrifice. Not laying on an altar, pouring out our lifeblood, but a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God. The first sacrifice we offer is ourselves. But the Bible speaks of many others. Our prayers are sacrifices. Our praise, we offer the sacrifice of praise. When you came to church tonight, folk, you might not have realized it, but you were presenting your body as an offering unto God. You did it. You could be at home. You could be out on the lake fishing or skiing, all sunburned and hurting. You could be out there all dehydrated and dried out and tired and wore down. You could be out there, but instead you're sitting here worshiping God. What did you do? You presented your body as a living sacrifice unto God. What did you do? You came in here then and we prayed together. We offered those. We prayed. Someone led us in prayer. 
But we could have just as easily had a time of prayer where everybody in this building prayed. Not just by listening to somebody else pray, but everyone prayed. You don't have to have somebody to pray for you. It's a good thing to be prayed for. But We worshiped. We offered up the sacrifice of praise. How important is that? The psalmist tells us that God inhabits the praises of his people. We bring others maybe with us. We teach others. We minister to others. And all of these things then as a holy priesthood being built together as a spiritual house, this New Testament church, rightly related to God, rightly related to one another, then we become a holy priesthood so that we can render then acceptable service unto God. Yeah. How important is that? Remember, Jesus told us that if we even give a cup of cold water in his name, that we'll no wise, in no wise you lose our reward. God sees when we come to church and we offer our body to him as a sacrifice. God sees it. When we come to our place, the place where we should be, where we are built together, and we join ourselves with other believers and submission to our Lord Jesus Christ to serve him. God God sees all of that. He sure does. When we go out into our workplace then and represent Jesus Christ to the people that we work with, God sees all that. See, we come to Jesus as a living stone, and then he turns us into living stones. It's a neat thing. And then God gives us a magnificent promise, and I'll give you this and we'll shut down tonight. I love that phrase, he'll by no means be put to shame. He that believeth on him shall by no means be put to shame, by no means be disappointed. Imagine that you have been raised all of your life, or imagine a person, maybe not yourself. Imagine someone who was raised all their life to believe uh, in the truths or the ideas as they think it is, the truths of Islam, the principles of Islam, so that you're a Muslim. You're not just any kind of Muslim. And you become, uh, this person becomes a devout Muslim. A very faithful follower of the principles of the Quran. He trusts in Muhammad. He observes very carefully all of the rituals. All of the formulas that are associated with their religion. As so many do, he becomes more and more hostile, especially to those who are Christian. It's not that Islam is against Jesus Christ as they see him. Uh, they, they will tell you very quickly they believe in Jesus. But when you read and research in the Jesus that they believe in, you'll find very quickly that he's not the same Jesus. And so for those who are perverting the name of Jesus, they grow increasingly hostile. You see, he's a devout Muslim, and 
So he believes in the Jesus who is coming again. Oh, they believe that. But you see, they believe in the Jesus who is coming again to destroy all of those people like you and I who believe that Jesus was the source of our life, coming to judge them, to destroy them, to wipe them off the face of the earth so that all that would be left would be the true followers of God and his one true prophet, Muhammad. They believe in Jesus. Believing all of those things, everything that he's been taught, then he associates himself with one of the groups that believes in jihad, the holy war. This young man then straps himself with explosive devices, rigs up a trigger that he can carry in his hand. He believes in Muhammad with all of his heart. He believes in the God of Islam. He believes it with all of his heart. He believes in jihad. He believes that Jesus is going to come back one day and wipe out all of those who reject Muhammad, his prophet, and who have not followed the truth. And so he believes in jihad, that they're just doing this work, this work of God, by wiping out the infidels. He walks into a crowd of people, this young man, Blows himself up. He believes with all his heart that he's going to go straight to heaven. That he's going to be welcomed by dozens of young beautiful virgins. And he'll get to spend his time all eternity then. Fulfilling his every desire. But when that young man dies... He's going to lift up his eyes in hell. And I don't just pick on the Muslims. That would be equally true of the followers of Buddha. The followers, the the Sikhs, the, the followers of the Hindu ideologies and any one of a hundred others. Sincerely. Sincerely believing that they are going to go through the pains of death. They're going to move forward in whatever way that their religion teaches them. But for everyone who dies without Jesus Christ, the future is the same. In hell, they'll lift up their eyes, being in torment. How disappointing. How disappointing. But what a glorious promise then is given to us in this magnificent passage by Simon Peter. Whosoever believeth on him, that's on Jesus Christ, shall not be disappointed. We have the very word of the one who died and lives again to assure us that when we die, we're going to go to heaven because we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because we trusted in him and received that magnificent salvation. Whoever believes on him will not be but shame. Now I tried to say what I just said as tenderly as I could say it. While still speaking the truth. You see, this Bible says there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. There is only one name by which people can be saved. Oh, that's offensive, Brother Rich. You bet it is. It was offensive when Simon Peter preached it. It's still offensive today. There is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. And I can assure you tonight, on the authority of God's word, if you'll believe on Jesus Christ, he will save you, and you will not be disappointed. Not for a moment. Not for a moment. We're not going to get to heaven and say, well, is this all there is? No. No. You'll not be disappointed. It is indeed sweet to trust in Jesus. Let's stand together, please.